Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sleep where? Sleep anywhere, that's what I say, whenever you can. This far into lockdown, my main daily motivation when I wake up is knowing that it's only 15 hours or so before I get to go back to bed again. And when so many of us are currently spending so much time in our PJs, or if you're an important key worker, needing some comfy ones for the scarce moments you get to wear them, British boxers are the properly ethically sound independent shop for undies and nightwear that you'll probably also wear in the day for quite some months yet. They have everything from hipster briefs, which I assume have their own beards and cutoffs, uh, to pyjama separates in case um, your pyjamas don't get on well enough to hang out together. OK, look, I'm clearly not an expert, but having got some of their nightwear, I promise it's well comfy. And if you make an order at British-Boxers.com and use the code PARPOLBRO10, then you'll get 10% off anything you buy. Hey, you might accuse me of being in the pockets of big pyjama, and I would say, yes, yes I am. And it's very, very snug in here. Join me. Join me. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that, like the vaccine, data shows that just one dose of it can dramatically reduce transmission. I'm Tina Duyeb and this week, as Prime Minister and what if all the bits people discarded from kebabs were reconstituted into a snowman, Boris Johnson, as he says we're travelling on a one-way road to freedom, I hope it isn't just to test our eyesight and prove that we're all responsible parents. Data, not dates, said Johnson with his new catchphrase about the new four-step lockdown lifting plans before he then announced specific dates for lockdown changes. Maybe that's because calendars have numbers on as well, so sort of data and dates are the same thing. Or perhaps that new catchphrase was based on an incident where his aide had to stop him pushing fruit into USB port. We'll never know, but I am worried that if, as the Prime Minister says, all the newly announced lockdown lifting plans are based on calculations, that if we check the detail of them, they'll all just say boobies. We're now at the stage of Boris Johnson's sitcom character arc where it might appear that he's changed his ways or learned from his mistakes, but by the end of the episode, it'll obviously become clear that he's incapable of something like that and the format will return to its normal unrealistic plots. This is a cautious plan, he said, which sounds really good, doesn't it? And you're sort of thinking, maybe after a year of watching the world work out exactly how to curb the virus, while he constantly insisted the British way was just to forget that anything was up and it's best not to trouble anyone about it, maybe, just maybe, the Prime Minister has finally realised that you can't stop a virus by ignoring it and hoping it'll eventually leave you alone. As you probably guessed, though, the reality is that Johnson's plan is cautious, like if Godzilla tried to tiptoe through Tokyo. And that's why all schools in England, primary and secondary, will all reopen on March the 8th, despite teachers not having had any priority for getting vaccinations, and secondary school children being proven to transmit the virus between them, like a DPD delivery service on Red Bull. In Scotland and Wales, there's been a phased reopening with youngest pupils returning first, and the chief medical officer and owl, Chris Whitty, is very unhappy with what is being referred to as the Big Bang of Schools, presumably because it's an event that will create the expansion of the coronavirus. But Johnson is driven by data, which means that someone once showed him a webpage that said the words school and open on it. So that means schools will be open March the 8th. Also, from the beginning of March, one person can meet another person for a coffee, just like they have done where I live pretty much since last summer, and absolutely no one's given a shit. And then from the end of March, the rule of six or two households returns, because that worked brilliantly last time, as well as outdoor sports, meaning we can all go back to passing this on to the people we've missed most. 
It's a four-step plan, with the aim being that by June the 21st, everything will be back to normal. It's just that no one will have any money to do anything but stay at home. Johnson keeps saying that the plan is irreversible, which could be because rather than reverse back into the last lockdown, we're just going to plunge headfirst into a brand new one, which will be all new and shiny. Spring and summer will be different to today, said Johnson, which is obvious. That's how seasons work. You're the Prime Minister. You should bloody well know that. I'm not saying we shouldn't be hopeful, but from the 8th of March, 30 people are allowed to attend a funeral, but only six can attend a wedding, which does suggest how the government think this might go. Results do show the vaccination programme is having a spectacular impact, though, on hospitalisations and on transmission too, which is great. And with the promise that every single adult will be offered a vaccine by July, that's quite exciting, even if it just means you'll at least get asked if you fancied one and then added to a very long list and not get jabbed for four years. So, hey, that'll mean there's only five months from March for everything to get much, much worse again. And if the government can't manage a comprehensive strategy in double that time, there's no way a virus could, right? People won't get as ill from it thanks to the vaccine, meaning it's only the possibly debilitating consequences of long Covid anyone will have to worry about. And that's not an issue for the government, as the DWP will just refuse any financial assistance because, hey, you could still find work as a draft excluder if you really wanted to. Obviously, everyone over 60 will be vaccinated, so they'll all be able to vote Conservative in the May local elections, while you can only visit the corner shop if you wear a full hazmat suit and are sprayed down before you leave the house. The priority, though, as many news outlets just keep insisting, is freedom. And of course, the sooner we get freedom, the sooner we can be free to catch what we like and pass it on to whoever we so please, because this is a democracy, Janet, and I should be able to host a virus if I so choose. And if you don't like it, maybe you should go and live in China, where actually you'd be safer from coronavirus right now, because they've spent the past year learning how to actually lock it down. The end is in sight, said the Prime Minister at the press briefing, but he didn't say if that was for lockdown or just everyone that may die in a potential third wave. Maybe the biggest pandemic we're actually facing right now is the mass inability to prioritise the right things, which certainly seems even more prevalent than the Rona. I mean, take Health Secretary and undercooked flatbread Matt Hancock. Please take him as far away as possible and to somewhere he can't possibly escape from. Hancock was found to have breached his legal obligation by not publishing details of who he'd dished Covid contracts out to within 30 days of them being signed. Something that likely happened because, as anyone who's ever tried to arrange a party or a group holiday will know, it's a bloody nightmare trying to pin down your mates into doing admin, isn't it? Isn't it? According to Hancock, though, he says delaying publishing the contracts was the right thing to do, which it wasn't, and a judge said it wasn't and that it was unlawful, which means officially that it was the wrong thing to do. It must be galling for people who are currently flying into the UK and may face a £10,000 fine if they lie about their travels to find that all along they could have just said, actually, me flying in from Corona State Coronaville was the right thing to do and everyone would fall over backwards to let them run around where they pleased. It was the right thing to do, Hancock meeked out like in his head that maybe this was the moment where his ability to pull off a Jedi mind trick would just manifest. The health secretary insisted it was okay because his team were too busy spending all their time finding life-saving equipment, which meant that the paperwork was just a little bit late. Well, it is very hard to fill in all the boring bits when on the phone to your best friends, isn't it? Where do you fit it in? Somewhere between laughing about the old days where you burn money in front of a tramp together, or maybe just before they tell you how much they'll donate to their party. Tricky, tricky to time it. You just can't interrupt all the ordering of 400,000 faulty gowns from Turkey while ignoring companies in your own country that want to help to fill in some boxes on a dull, dull legal form, can you? There's just no time for that. And as Hancock pointed out, his staff's hard work meant that we didn't have a national shortage of PPE. As obviously, you might remember from last year, nurses just wore all those bin bags for kicks, right? I mean, that's just one of those things that they learn at medical school, yeah? About being creative at work by going all blue Peter in the cleaning cupboards to make their own custom protective wear, yeah? Half of all healthcare workers say they were given PPE that was inappropriate or inadequate. But hey, Hancock didn't say it was good PPE that they had, just that they had enough. So frankly, if these nurses really cared about their jobs, they'd have got out some cling film and sticky back plastic and filled in all the gaps themselves, right? The Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency are currently investigating a £30 billion contract for the testing vials that was given by the Department of Health to the former owner of Matt Hancock's local pub called The Cock Inn, presumably after every time the health secretary visited. Fair play though, as pint glasses are basically test tubes for beer and pubs have those, so maybe the best person to make test tubes for something completely different using a process that is nothing like running a pub is someone who'd shout the usual to Matt Hancock as he walked in and put something from one of the Now That's Why I Call Music compilations on the jukebox before giving someone else an unironic fist bump. 
The firm, owned by Alex Bourne, the worst part of the Bourne trilogy, at one point paid a manufacturer of bouncy castles to make a room for unpacking supplies, which was intended to be, and this is the legal term, comparatively contamination-free but not medical-grade sterile. Come on now, I've seen bouncy castles before. It is amazing what you can wipe off them with a sponge. As long as everyone doing the unpacking took their shoes off first, I bet it was fine. Leader of the opposition and Xerox Magnifax telecopier Keir Starmer says that he won't call for Matt Hancock's resignation as calling for people to resign is not what the public really want to see. Well, no, I suppose you're right, Keir. I mean, what I, one of them publics, really want to see is Matt Hancock fired into space. But failing that, I'd be very, very happy with a 24-7 streaming channel of cabinet ministers being forced to resign because they weren't even trying to do their job properly before getting bundled into a plane as on a one-way ticket to Antarctica. I'd watch that on more than one screen at a time. I suppose it is tricky to assume Hancock might tender his resignation when the issue is his inability to tender anything during the pandemic. But considering Keir Starmer, former Director of Public Prosecutions, spent his previous career insisting on harsh sentences for all crime, you'd think he'd at least be able to manage more than a mealy-mouthed one for Hancock. Starmer's other big comments of the past week included Labour's proposal for the British Recovery Bond, which might sound like the sort of 2021 appropriate next part of the Bond franchise, but it's actually a plan that allows people to save money and contribute to the country's economic recovery. Because, as we all know, the biggest issue of the pandemic is just that we haven't had enough mattresses to stuff all our saved cash into from all the work that we've been doing, so this definitely feels like a really good way to fix that. Starmer also proposed start-up loans for 100,000 small firms, and the Conservatives have accused him of stealing their ideas. But on the plus side, they stole quite a lot of ideas from the last Labour manifesto, so maybe by Starmer stealing them back, he might actually have some that eventually appeal to Labour voters. I recently discovered that Starmer is a member of the Trilateral Commission, the rich man's club that doesn't believe true democracy should be given to the people. So I'm now certain that it's still his plan to make Labour an opposition in the way that Burger King is McDonald's main opponent, but both are mostly out to take your money and make you feel like shit while packaging it as some sort of incredible deal with a toy. It says a lot that, according to the Conservatives, Labour aren't really their opposition anymore, as actually they've turned all their efforts to the culture war, something that shouldn't even be a thing when they've happily let most culture die since last March. It was announced that soon the Office for Students, part of the Department of Education, will be able to fine students for meddling with free speech. Yeah, you know those university students who've been running rampage on society by being stuck in their rooms for a year and paying thousands for the privilege. Urgh, them. The government's proposals will allow academic students or visiting speakers to be able to sue a university for compensation if they feel they've been no-platformed. And Education Secretary and what if a stupid demon possessed a foam shrimp, Gavin Williamson, is going to appoint a free speech champion, which I suppose is like someone who wins at rap battles but only using racist jokes. According to the government, people with conservative views are being censored on campus. But there's no real evidence for this, and it's highly likely it's just based on how no one wanted to talk to Williamson when he was a student because he's inherently unlikable. Once again, it seems that the party who've been in power for over a decade and who dominate the media narrative are upset that still not everyone wants to listen to them. Even though in Johnson's short career as Prime Minister alone, ministers were banned from using the word Brexit and had the whip removed if they didn't agree with him. Then they put Greenpeace and Extinction Rebellion on the terrorist watch list for having the extreme views of wanting to breathe in the future and they told schools to remove all anti-capitalist material. It is funny, when in Johnson's short career as Prime Minister alone, ministers have been banned from using the word Brexit and had the whip removed if they didn't agree with him, then they put Greenpeace and Extinction Rebellion on the terrorist watch list for having their awful extreme views of wanting to breathe in the future, and they told schools to remove all anti-capitalist material. So is the Conservatives' biggest concern a threat to free speech, or more that they and their donors spend so much money to be heard and dominate the media narrative and still can't understand why people don't fancy listening to it, because it's awful? In theory, the proposals could also mean anyone from an extremist group could sue a university if they can't give a talk on the basics of petrol bombing Westminster. But more excitingly, they mean that every single university could hold a course called Gavin Williamson is a massive bellend and he'd face court action if he tried to shut them down. There appears to be issues with freedom of speech within the government too, as Conservative think tank the Bow Group, or I believe the Bow Group, so-called because they're so snooty they think that's how everyone should greet them, are calling for an inquiry into the influence in number 10 of live-action Peppa Pig, Carrie Simmons, as it's been repeatedly reported that she's been playing a central role, and they're very angry that an unelected official like her got rid of the unelected official they liked, sinister gooseberry Dominic Cummings. One of Cummings' pals and sickly child Oliver Lewis resigned last week as Johnson's advisor on keeping the UK together, on account of having to work with another advisor who's a pal of Simmons that he didn't like. 
It's very on brand for this government to have the union expert unable to work with people he doesn't agree with. The Bow Group have called Simmons' supposed influence cronyism, complaining that she hasn't been elected or appointed, which is true, and so maybe Simmons should have just been given a peerage in a cabinet position like David Frost was last week, and that might make it more palatable. They didn't complain when Johnson's former special adviser was employed via cronyism either, and maybe the Bow Group had just miffed that Simmons is female and his wife, unaware that really, both times it just shows the Prime Minister is very easily swayed by Cummings. In other news, Chancellor and toilet roll puppet Rishi Sunak announced that he would be sitting with industry leaders and experts to hear how they've reacted to the pandemic, before then posting a video of him talking to angry nan Gordon Ramsay, who mainly reacted to the pandemic by laying off 500 staff last year so that he could do a TV show instead. Though, to be fair, that does sound like exactly the sort of inspiration Sunak was looking for and will no doubt announce in the budget that any rich millionaire chefs who want a change in career will be given money to put a show pitch together if they can prove they've fired at least half of their lowest earning staff. To be fair to Sunak, he does seem so completely unaware of life on any of the ladder rungs lower than billionaire that maybe he thinks Gordon Ramsay represents all of the food industry and makes all of the food all by himself. There's a high chance that Sunak's next video will be with Nick Knowles, who does all of the buildings. Foreign Secretary and Chipolata in the rain, Dominic Raab, has called for ceasefires in Yemen to allow for vaccinations. Smart business move, Dom, as there's no point in selling weapons to Saudi Arabia to kill Yemenis with if they all die of Covid first. Housing Secretary and what if you 3D printed someone using a blueprint containing all the words that mean hollow, Robert Jenrick, has announced that the Housing Department is going to create a second base in Wolverhampton, the first government department outside of London. Considering how many homes Robert Jenrick has, there'll probably be at least two more locations announced as well. Wolverhampton is in the top 6% of most deprived areas in the UK, and now with Jenrick regularly there too, it'll be in the top 6% most depraved as well. And lastly, there have been concerns about the safety of Dubai's Princess Latifah after the BBC received videos of her saying she'd been held hostage by her family since 2018. The UN are investigating, but I'm sure Boris Johnson will step up and save her any day now by claiming she was just doing her job as a journalist. And in yet another hooray for the courts moment this week, the Supreme Court ruled that Uber drivers must be treated as workers not self-employed, which means they're entitled to minimum wage and holiday pay. Great news, but finding parking for office Christmas dues is going to be hard for them, and tougher still to get someone to find a cab to drive them all home after. Good now times to you listeners. Um, I hope you're all excited about the four stops till freedom as an email I received from some food website shouted at my inbox today. It's so weird that the focus is all about, but when will we be free rather than when will it be safe and when will people stop dying? It's what at least one journalist has asked at every press briefing for the past year. There was one in the press briefing today who uh, just asked Boris Johnson, what's happened to you? Are you now a gloomster in the way that that person probably does a line before going to a funeral and then asks why all the tunes aren't banging before pissing on the grave? Yeah, sure, people are dead and that, but when I went, can I drunkenly cry in the pub again? Priorities. I mean, don't get me wrong. I complain pretty much every day about not being able to do things like leave my agent with her grandparents and then spend all day lying very, very still. But I'd still prefer not to do those things for a bit longer than do them and make people die. I mean, okay, obviously it might depend on the people. But am I weird? Am I weird? Is that weird? It's so strange how all of this makes you really question life choices. I mean, I followed all of the rules, but then I'll see a big group of people drinking in the park together and think, ah, shit. Maybe I should have gone on holiday to Greece. Obviously, I would need money to do that. But I just mean there's an increasing concern that maybe I'm the idiot for not going to pubs that are shut and breaking in via the back window and drinking out-of-date beer from the taps and then stealing all the crisps. Oh, no, wait. That's just burglary, isn't it? Is burglary okay if it's socially distanced, if no one's in the pub when I break in? Oh, I don't know anymore. What if I shout, it's the right thing to do, just as I do it? Honestly, this year has been all sorts of confusing. It will be very nice if we can actually do all the normal things that I won't be able to afford to do by June the 21st. I'm particularly looking forward to going to a noisy bar and then realising I hate it and shouting, how much is this at the bar? And then leaving almost immediately, then complaining how much a cab costs home um, and then not going to another one out of choice for at least a year. Either way, uh, it does seem that it will be the hope that will kill us uh, before COVID does. Hopefully not. Hopefully it'll be all right. If you are a teacher listening to this, I hope you are doing okay uh, with the very stressful news for you. you. Um, 
it's completely nuts that you're being told you have to hang out with 30 kids every day but it's not safe uh, for you to meet another household till April I was reading the news about Daft Punk splitting up yeah I know right and I thought it's a shame uh, that they've done that just as they're the only band that could perform live without needing extra PPE but then I thought maybe maybe they should sort of go into prepping teachers maybe they should do sort of masks for teachers that could be what teachers need right if you could teach your class dressed as Darth Vader not only safer for you but also one kid mucks about and you could just sort of raise your hand in a threatening way and they'd immediately stop so just think I'm putting that out there maybe someone get the dragons on it someone get the dragons to uh, to push this through I've not really got much else to say this week. I've been busy with things that I can't even tell you about for ages. I will one day, don't you worry, but I can't tell you about it at the moment. Um, so mainly, um, a very, very quick thanks to Taz and Connell for donating to the Kofi this week. And should you fancy supplementing the fact that I still can't do any live work until probably the end of May at the very least, and by that I mean 2022, then please fling your earnings at the Kofi.com forward slash bro, Patreon.com forward slash bro, or ACAST supporter sites. Um, give this show a lovely review in any of the places. Thank you, Philip, for your great review on Apple. Um, music um, and yes Stitcher all works again now too hooray and mostly just let other people know that this is here so they don't accidentally sit in it or fall on it or something you know, health and safety first and that's it I told you there's barely any admin this week that's it for the babble section um, so this week's show has a chat with Natasha and Giles at the end dark cladding scandal campaign which is quite a hard thing to say actually out loud uh, in the podcast end dark cladding scandal campaign oh it gets your tongue going um, and then there's a little bit in the middle about why Matt Hancock isn't in prison and it's because he, he basically he can't like he, there's no reason for him to go but also he should he should just go basically it's about why I would like him to go but he can't actually go you know just to listen Now, I've only lived on this earth for 40 years. There is still much that I don't understand or know. But if you told me about someone who found out that they lived in a fire trap and then when they asked for help to escape it, were told that they must pay for the privilege, I'd assume it was a new instalment in the Saw movie franchise or some cruel twist on the hostage movie genre. And at some point, Liam Neeson might threaten someone in a way that makes it sound like he really, really needs a lozenge. Obviously, though, I haven't got a clue about reality, as according to the government, this is just the standard way to treat millions of people who currently live in buildings with unsafe cladding or a number of other worrying safety issues. I suppose, if you look at it objectively, maybe it's someone's own fault for choosing to live somewhere they had no idea was a veritable death trap because shoddy contractors were given vast amounts of money by public institutions to throw together buildings quickly and pocket the profit. I mean, who else's fault would it be? The contractors who did it? The government whose years of cuts and destruction of safety regulations have caused this? No, don't be silly. It's the residents' fault for wanting to live a normal life and not die unnecessarily, which is the sort of selfish intention that some people just insist on having in today's day and age. What are they like? A couple of weeks ago, Housing Secretary Robert Jenrick announced new plans to end the cladding scandal in, as Jenrick said, a way that is fair and generous. Uh, He didn't say fair to who, though, and it appears it was mostly generous to developers, contractors and no one else. And it's probably only fair in the way that at a coconut shy, it will cost you a lot of money to not get any prizes. Not enough money was pledged to make buildings safe, not every building qualifies for the plans and leaseholders are still going to be subject to a number of charges because they have the audacity to want to live in their homes and be safe. It's once again another example where the government have seen a gaping wound, heard the cries for help and decided all they can be bothered to manage is to put a small finger plaster on it and then blame the victim for still being stubborn enough to bleed out and die despite everything that they've done for them. The Conservatives are meant to be the party of home ownership but maybe that's just because the Housing Secretary owns several himself and isn't remotely bothered about any others. This week, I spoke to Natasha Letchford and Giles Grover at the End Our Cladding Scandal campaign, who are calling on the government to lead a national effort to end the cladding and safety crisis. It's been quite a busy week for them at the campaign, with the McPartland Smith Amendment to the Fire Safety Bill going to Parliament this week on Wednesday, so it may have happened by the time you've heard this. And that's where two Conservative MPs have tabled the proposal that no costs of remedial work on the buildings necessary as part of the Act are passed on to the leaseholders or tenants. And if that goes through, as I said, it may have happened by now, it'll make a very, very big difference to those currently hit by large costs on top of all their safety worries too. So I asked Natasha and Giles all about the scandal and how people are affected, why Jenrick's recent announcement was so useless and just what can be done to help. Hi, Giles and Natasha. Thank you for speaking with me this week. I know you've got a very, very busy week um, ahead of you. Um, I suppose the first question I, I feel I should ask you is that it's been, and, and this might sound a bit naive, I guess, but it's been three and a half years since Grenfell Tower, since the horrific fire, which uh, I'm sure that all the listeners will absolutely remember. It's still sort of scarred in my memory it was just hugely upsetting why is it 
taken so long? Why has it taken three and a half years uh, to remove all the flammable cladding? And how many people are still living in properties um, that are essentially or could be dangerous to live in? Uh, so the the issue really has been that the government tried to um, sort of sweep this under the carpet um, and not much was done in the first uh, couple of years, really. Um, so then we had gradually things have come out. So we had ACM cladding at first, which was the type of cladding that was on Grenfell. Um, and since then, other cladding's been tested. So um, there was HPL cladding, which is on a lot of buildings, um, which has kind of caused the, the biggest um, problem. Um, I think it, it is not quite as flammable um, as ACM, um, but still dangerous for those of us living in those buildings. Um, and there's been the government sort of just delayed, really, um, in trying to get any grip on the, the numbers involved and taking any real action. The first action that we really saw was um, the the ACM fund, which was um, relatively small. Um, we then had some additional money last March last year um, for non-ACM buildings. Um, which only covered a you know really quite small fraction. It's one point six billion, which sounds like a lot of money, um, but it only covers sort of a, a really small percentage of the problem. Um, and and the focus has just not been on collecting data, not been on um, finding out how many of these buildings are unsafe. Um, so until you know the size of the problem, you can't really offer a, a kind of genuine solution to it, really. Um, so at this stage, we again we still don't really have a clear idea of numbers. Um, but potentially up to 11 million people um, are affected by this scandal one way or another, um, either because they're living in homes that are unsafe or because they're unable to get EWS forms to say that their homes are safe. Um, but there are probably um, around 3,000 buildings that have registered for the fund over 18 metres. So, um, you know, they're the, the really um, the sort of uh, buildings that the government are focusing on, um, but potentially around um, 77,000 buildings under 18 metres, um, which, you know, at the moment, we still don't know the status of whether they're safe or unsafe. I would also just uh, chip in that the government spent two years basically saying building owners and developers should do the right thing. They knew what the law is, leasehold law, which is quite an arcane, archaic system, means that we're literally at the bottom of the food chain where a freeholder can do anything they want and then recharge it to us. But the government, successive prime ministers, um, ministers of housing kept saying, building owners, developers do the right thing, protect leaseholders from more costs. That failed completely. So government realised it was failing, so they started giving some money. But as I say, it's been three and a half years and they're still, they're now taking it seriously because it's all over the press, it's all over the media. Um, MPs from each party are you know, supporting our cause for fairness. So they're getting there, but they're just spending a lot of time just trying to, you know, playing with the optics of it, talking about the cladding scandal, for example, when we've, when we've said for the past year, it's extended far beyond that. So they still don't have as firm a grip, as Tash says, on the data as well, because once you've got the data, then you can assess the risk. Then you'll know the true extent of the funding problem. It's simply a case of saying, well, throw money at it. At it. Hopefully the press will calm down now. I mean, that is such an incredibly large amount of people that could be affected. I didn't realise it could, it could be as many as 11 million, which is, I mean, it's, it's horrifying however many, but that is really quite shocking. Um, and from what I understand from, from your campaign, it's been sort of shoved over to leaseholders to have to deal with this, as you sort of briefly mentioned there, Charles. That, so is, is it, is, have um, the people responsible kind of shirked responsibility? How has it ended up in the hands of leaseholders and what have they had to do to be protecting themselves when we start when we first find out that your home's unsafe you know you get a letter you might see two blokes walking around in a high-vis jacket it's a waking watch so they can wake you up at night if there's a fire so you wonder what's happened exactly so we go to the builders and developers and they say oh we received all the approvals at the time we then go to the um the building control the local authority they say oh no we just we just signed the completion certificate doesn't prove anything so we've sort of been going back and forth, and that's now kind of being mirrored between government and the developers. And ultimately, the government regulations have always been very have been weak for about 30 years. The builders have been able to do what they want. And ultimately, again, we're just we're just literally at the bottom of the ladder, just hoping that someone will come in and help us and, and you know stand true to the words of protecting us. Because the law basically does mean that we, you know, would be forced to pay, but there's no way we can pay. 
And ultimately, it's just a question of fairness. There's no way we should pay, really, because our homes have just been built so unsafely, under 80 metres, over 80 metres, inside, outside. That's where we go back to the numbers are quite difficult because you don't know until you rip apart the walls when you look between the floors what exactly is there because everyone could just do what they wanted for 20, 30 years. I mean, you, you didn't build the place. That's not your fault. <laughs> you know, it's just ridiculous. But the costs, are, from what I've seen, the costs are absolutely just bonkers, aren't they? The, the charges that have been pushed onto leaseholders. It's in sort of hundreds of thousands. Is that right? Yeah, they're, they're absolutely nuts. And um, I mean, the, I think the biggest bill that we're aware of is 160000 per flat, um, which is just, you know, that could be the value of someone's property, if not more. Um, these aren't, you know, big fancy, you know, they're one, two bedroom flats, um, you know, it, all over the country. It isn't just London centred. It's, it's all over the country, up and down, you know, big cities, smaller towns, um it's everywhere um and that's that's just the remediation costs that's before we even get into interim measures so um whilst obviously these are really big projects they're not something that can be done overnight um as an example our project is is anticipated to take 18 months to two years to complete um so it's until you've got until you've got the cladding off the building is still unsafe um, so we're having to um, pay increased insurance charges. Sometimes um, insurance has gone up by a thousand percent for a building, which means that some some flats are paying three thousand pounds a year just on insurance insurance for their um, building. That's per flat, which is just nuts. We, you know, people don't have that sort of money. People living in these homes don't have that money just lying around. Um, then we've got waking watches. I think the worst figure that we've heard on waking watches is £1,500 a month per flat, um, which, again, that's someone's income, you know, that gone just on having some chap wandering around in a high-vis jacket um, looking at, you know, looking out for a fire, basically. Um, and that can be there until the, the fire alarm is installed, which, again, is another cost that's passed on to leaseholders, um, or even after um, the fire alarms are installed. So it's just, you know, the, the remediation cost is is the biggest number but until then um you know people are pay, still paying huge huge amounts of money just for the interim measures um and we all heard um i know uh Tony, you covered the um the cladding scandal before and um the the case of Haley um tillotson who went bankrupt just because of interim interim measures she hadn't even had the remediation costs yet um and we fear that actually that will be the position for a lot of people because they can't maintain these amounts of money for any period of time it's really and i mean you know there's that's financial anxiety you must also have anxiety about living in a place that you don't know how safe you are in it that what does that feel like is that uh, you know it must be causing a lot of mental health issues for people yeah uh the the mental health toll i have to say is is really quite significant um i can speak on this from a personal perspective but also from someone who's supporting people in the building um and as as a sort of wider campaign group um it is uh it's awful to know that your home's unsafe um and there's you know when we first heard, I was um, thinking about how long will it take me to get down my 12 flights of stairs? Um, will I get out in time? What would I have to, is there anything that I should have by the door to be able to take with me in the event of a fire? Because will I be able to get out quick enough? Um, you know, it's it's really quite terrifying. And then you think, you know, you've got the waking watch in place. Will they will they re- come back into the building to, to knock on people's doors? Um, and and people are, it's it's the, the pressure of the situation from a um, financial perspective, but also from just feeling unsafe in your homes, especially when we're locked down in them, you know, 23 hours a day. Um, we sometimes feel that actually we would be safer outside than inside because our, our homes are so unsafe. Um, and many of us don't know the scale of the problem until we start taking the cladding off. Um, yeah, I was going to say similar to that, really. I think the point is that you are locked down in your home and, you know, you start off with a financial, you know, insecurity and then, you know, just either getting a bill and saying your home might be safe, it might not be safe, we need to do some checks. But like Tash says, I mean, I live on the ninth floor and I, I've got fire alarms installed now in my flats, all the flats in the development that open up to the unsuitable construction. We've actually got the same cladding as, as a Grenfell tragedy, which still hasn't come off yet. We're hopeful it will be in the next couple of months, but we just don't know. So every so often I'll hear a you know someone beeping outside or you know, you'll hear something, you think, is that my alarm going off? Is that someone else's alarm going off? And you're just constantly in a state of sort of being on edge. You know, you don't you, you sort of get used to it after a while, really, when you just lie down, you just think about cladding and then just thinking, 
hang on a minute, it's you know, it's now like half ten, what we've been thinking for the past half hour. So the, the mental health impacts, you know, you can't you can't really underestimate them to be honest, because it is, especially in a in a pandemic where it's just am I am I safer at home, am I safer outside, am I safer at home, safer outside. So yeah, it's just it's constant financial, mental, everything just you just feel trapped really. It's just it's just awful. I'm so sorry that you have to go through that. It's it's so horrible that you know. I think it was Theresa May, wasn't it, that when she said, "Oh, we'll make sure this never ever happens again. No one go through it." And it's sort of three and a half years later, and haven't done a thing. That's a really frustrating thing. That it's always the politicians, you know, the Grenfell tragedy, the anniversary. It's never again. They're on Twitter, never again. Hashtag never again. And they and that's the thing. They're just all these warm words for years. They'll protect us. Then something's from unaffordable costs, and it's just it just you sort of. You just get more and more angry and so you know it, they, they don't realize they're actually helping us by helping us campaign in a weird way but the fact is that they're not they just keep saying these trite words that don't mean anything they never back them up with action and it's made us all very cynical and even more angry so it's good in a way but it's also we just need to see a final you know an, a one-stop solution that just means we can all get on with our lives because honestly it could just carry on the five ten years to be honest yeah, I, I don't give them any incentive to think it's good in any way. I mean, <laughs> they'll, they'll take that and run with it. Well, we've been we've boosted some some people's uh, confidence or something. There'll, there'll be a way to spin it. Um, I mean, I, 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 you sort of mentioned obviously, you know, there's a lot of people that are responsible for this in terms of the construction of the buildings, but then there's in terms of the policies and things. Who would you say is should be responsible for it now? And and have there been any attempts from anyone to be accountable for it? And take uh, control of the situation where should we start so it's been a problem for decades and it's successive governments we always want to make that want to make that point that it's not just the conservatives not just labor it's not just coalition government you know 2006 they were concerned about climate change which meant that they allowed combustible insulation to be put into flats because they were worried about energy efficiency so it's successive governments the point that we always say and we have been saying for two years is it's only government that's got the power to put the money up front and actually take on the claims against the developers because there's this constant as i say when we discovered it we go between the builders and the building control now we're going between back and forth between government and it's just pillar to post again ultimately the regulations they were inadequate and impossible to use and allowed the gaming of the system this horrible term called value engineering where they could just you know save cost, save a lot of costs by cutting important safety corners no one ever looked over it there was no oversight. So it's it's government regulations, but it is the bad builder practice. And then we start looking at some of the product manufacturers who've just been faking their fire safety tests for decades. You know, some of the revelations from the Grenf, it's every day you just see something else. But no one's going after those manufacturers, are they? Why isn't the government actually just almost taking on those claims? They've started doing a little bit by saying we're going to levy uh, the developers over 10 years for two billion. But it's a drop in the ocean. You know, it's not even going to scratch the surface. And it means we're going to have to pay the rest of it through either loans or, you know, a lot of people are just going to move to forfeiture, repossession, really. There's just going to be no point. No. What was the cause the building safety fund was announced, announced last May? And we'll get to the more recent announcement in a minute. But what were the problems with that? Was that because as far as I understood, it just wasn't anywhere near enough money to cover the things that were needed. Is that is that right? Yeah, there was a couple of problems with it. First, um, not enough money. It's one point six billion or one billion for um, HPL cladding, um, and the extra six hundred thousand was um, previously announced for ACM cladding. There were problems with it um, from the start. So, um, one billion again sounds like a lot of money, but in the grand scale of this crisis, it just isn't. Um, and the it was restricted to um, so it's on, done on a first come first serve basis, which just seems um, like the most bizarre way to operate something that is making people's homes safe. Um, you get there first, and you get the first lot of money, um, regardless of whether your home is you know on the scale of unsafe. Um, there, there might be some that are much worse off than you. Um, so that that was a problem. Uh, it only covered cladding or cladding systems, as they called it. So there are lots of things um, which it's now as you know, as applications have gone in um, and had, have been assessed by the government. Um, lots of things that are coming out that they're not covering. Um, so you might have um, combustible insulation, for example, but they're not. Uh, and they'll cover that if it's behind cladding. Um, but if it's behind brick, um, you're going to have a problem claiming that back. So so these people are getting sort of partial funding. Um, but that partial funding might cover, say, half the problem. Um, but they still have to raise the other half from leaseholders. And, you know, 
cutting a bill in half is great, but if the bill is 70,000, cutting it in half still doesn't make it affordable for anybody. Um, it was also limited to buildings over 18 metres only. So anyone um, in, a, in a building under 18 metres um, just hasn't, you know, they, they don't even have a chance of that funding. Um, there was a kind of a concession by the government, I suppose, that um, buildings that were over 17.7 metres could apply. Um, they basically, um, it, it became clear that the, the um, builders were um, sort of playing the system because the regulations were um, less stringent for, for buildings under 18 metres. So they were building them deliberately just under 18 metres to get around that, um, which, you know, that there was, so if your building was over 17.7 metres, you could apply for funding. But, um, you know, that still excludes the, a, a large proportion of these, um, these issues and also these buildings. Um, so it just isn't enough. I mean, the fact that if you're in a building that's less than 18 metres, is there sort of thinking that, well, I suppose you can get out easier and still lose everything you've ever had? Like, it's, there doesn't, there's no sense to that at so, all. So uh, Robert Demick in his statement said that he would be focusing um, the new building safety fund and the and the previous um, chunk of money on buildings over 18 metres where the, um, the risk was higher or highest, I think he said. Um, but the, there is actually no, you know, we haven't seen evidence that, that it is that's um the the sort of a, a cut off at which um it becomes much more dangerous and actually um a senior civil servant was um recorded saying that uh they were using the 18 meter height limit because they didn't have time to come up with a better number um there's video footage of that out there um and you know that's quite a shocking approach to take to um building safety and what is essentially um risking people's lives um and the fact that the government haven't moved away from this um 18 meter height limit is you know it's awful absolutely disgusting in my view yeah that that video is on youtube and it's been we've seen it a couple of times before and it hasn't really got the sort of attention but now i think it's in the newspaper inside housing again pete apps reported on it and it's quite shocking it was after grenfell and it's the guy i mean i won't say his name but you can probably link the, the youtube or you can find out yourself and he's responsible for the building regulations but it's literally just the strangest it looks like a comedy show or something it's like satire because he just it's so flippant, his responses, just saying, oh, I don't know, you know, somebody with heights and ladders, something like that. You've got people laughing in the background. Well, now our lives are being judged by this. We're potentially going to be pushed into loan schemes for centuries because they haven't yet got a handle on risk. So it just sort of, you know, it shows the attitude, really, of whether it's government, of whether it's the civil servants of just, okay, you know, like the thing you mentioned in your last podcast, you know, give them an inch and they'll take a mile. That's not really the way to deal with safety and risk at our buildings and making, you know, the voters, the people who are going to vote you in next time. That's not really the way to treat us. We, we do have long men. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And we'll be back with Natasha and Charles in just a minute, but first... 
I wasn't sure it would be useful in this week's middle bit, but as you've probably all been looking at the lockdown lifting news and have it in your diaries the second you can all go to a zoo again, um, I thought rather than go over all that, which may well change, it'd be more useful this week to explain why, even when we all really, really wish Matt Hancock would get sent to prison, like a really awful prison where he has to sit in basically a concrete hole with only a spider for his friend. Um, why, even though we want that, sadly in this case, being unlawful isn't the same as being illegal, even though they sound really similar. I mean, not in a rhyming way, obviously. Don't even try it. Stop it. No one needs that sort of word wrangling you're just butchering it you likely heard about the success of the good law project last week where they won the judicial review uh, that they took to the high court with three mps into whether the lack of transparency of the awarding of contracts during the pandemic was a breach of conduct by the department of health uh, and it's great they won which is brilliant the high court found that matt hancock acted unlawfully breached his legal obligation to publish contract award notices within 30 days of awarding contracts and generally acted like a total corrupt asshole okay it didn't say the last bit but read between the lines yeah there's nothing between the lines you can write in acted like a total corrupt arsehole in Byron, and it's there then it's there the judge said the public were entitled to see who the money was going to what it was being spent on and had the government complied with legal obligations then the contracts could have been scrutinized and had issues raised about them in parliament but they didn't do that they evaded all accountability and have since insisted that actually they did the right thing by spending all their time fighting unsuitable ppe that no one could use instead a bit like when I try and justify not doing the washing up, as I was spending all my time ignoring my agent, sorry daughter, while she tried to climb things she shouldn't, and I played on my phone. What does this mean? Well, when a public body or representative of one, such as Monsua Hancockery, is unlawful, it means they've not complied with the provisions of public law, i.e. the duties the law has provided it to do. When they don't do that, they can be held accountable at a judicial review in the High Court, and then the court decides if they've done the noughties or not. The court can make a quashing order which nullifies the whole thing and then it's up to the defendant to decide if they do it all over again in light of the decision. Or there can be a declaration where they sort of, well, declare what the legal position is or they can do nothing really as the whole point is really sort of just to decide if what was done was legal and then the public body has the responsibility to act legally from then. Which might seem a bit disappointing but it's kind of what judicial reviews are for and how they work and how they kind of work out what the legalities of the public sector are. The judge at the case last week said the case itself gave her no doubt that it sped up compliance with the correct procedure from now on. It's sort of a very expensive, I've got my eye on you, Sonny Jim, and should be, under normal circumstances, pretty shameful for anyone found doing the unlawful, so shameful that they vow to probably never ever do it again. However, as we've already seen, Matt Hancock still insists what he did was right and that everyone had enough PPE when they didn't. And it's actually pretty ridiculous how many times this government have been found to be unlawful over the past few years, from proroguing of Parliament to rolling out the Test and Trace programme without correct data protection in place, to using warrants to hack phones, to a consultation in children in care being too narrow, to their air quality plan. And had the government admitted to its unlawfulness with the Covid contracts in this case, it would have saved them £200,000 of legal costs taking it to court, but I guess that is taxpayers' money they're using, so they probably don't care that much so should matt hancock go to prison i mean yes but not for the law breaching just because i think he should and i'm certainly trying to get him with all the gangs and get all the tattoos he thought he needed and have a really terrible time should he resign well also yes that would be the honorable thing to do but then there's concern that matt hancock resigning now would cause even more chaos in the department of health than there is already and god knows they'd probably replace him with mark francois who'd spend all the nhs budget on gun turrets on top of every hospital so, uh, what next? Well, it's worth following the Good Law Project, who've written to Hancock saying what needs to happen to improve the process, and I guess we'll see if he ever responds. In the meantime, on this show, I might just refer to him as the unlawful health secretary and really hope he tunes in and feels very sad about it. And now, back to Natasha and Giles. And, 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 and you sort of mentioned earlier that Obviously, they're only aiming to sort of deal with cladding because it's in the news and people aren't paying attention to the fact these buildings are unsafe in many other ways. And so it doesn't seem like they're bothered about the ones that we don't all know about. When we start, we launched our, relaunched our End Our Cladding Scandal campaign. We initially started in April 2019 because it was, the focus was on aluminium composite material, which was the cladding. We, even then though, we said that we need a building safety fund, all heights, all defects. So when we relaunched in September, that was one of the key things. We even said in our step two, it's not just cladding. That's what we've been saying. It's the cladding systems. It's inside. It's timber balconies. At my building, they didn't even apply any fire protection to the steel framework. So that means, you know, if, it's, if there's a fire, the building potentially will collapse quite quickly. I mean, that's just a very simple way of, of saving money. So um, it, it goes far beyond cladding. And this is where, you know, the ministers, the government's sort of playing with the optics. You know, I think they said a couple of times, oh, we're ending the cladding scandal. Well, 
you're not ending the building safety crisis. You know, we are still going to be trapped. We're still going to have to pay tens of thousands of pounds. Just to pick up on that point about they've, they've said historically used 18 metres as, you know, the, the cutoff over that um, is diff more difficult potentially to escape. So we've always said is, is 18 metres, you know, th there's a lot of different things that make up assessing risk. Robert Jenrick himself, and this really winds me up, 20th of January 2020, he did say he's commissioning leading experts in the field to develop a sophisticated assessment of risk. We're still waiting for that because he said himself, height is a crude and arbitrary factor. So, okay, height's a crude and arbitrary factor 13 months ago. If you issued a call for evidence that closed in May 2020, where the results of that, 12 times in his statement, which we might well come on to, sorry, I'm going into a bit of a diatribe here, 12 times he said he rely on expert advice. No one's seen that expert advice. Where is it? I was just going to ask you about his statement because that was the big announcement uh, last week. Um or the other way, you know, and, and I, I wondered if that made any positive improvements at all, if that sort of update was, <laughs> what, what listeners can't see is that Giles raised his eyebrows <laughs> in the, the most amazing way. Um, <laughs> um, I've been told my, I need to no, my no, 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 that was, that was brilliant. I like that, yeah, I wish that listeners would be able to see your eyebrows answered the question very quickly. Um, yeah, so I, I'm guessing for, from that expression that, that it wasn't a, a positive announcement at all. I relaunched into my diatribe again. Um, again, it goes back to the fact that we do welcome the more money, and, and that's the thing. In total, it will be five billion, although two billion of that, as far as we understand, will be repaid off by the levy system. So it's still a sizable amount of money to the general public. You know, it's why are you giving these guys three billion or five billion, whatever it may be. Ultimately, though, it's still not going to fix the problem, and it's still not a proper holistic approach to say. And like they did, they did this in Australia, so they've not even learned from the task force. They've spoken to the guys over there. It's, a sim it's not a simple case, but you've got 3,000 buildings. You can at least start to say which are the highest risk that we need to focus on, which are medium risk, which are the lowest risk, which we might not have to do anything to. But it needs to be a solution for all buildings. There's a lot of buildings. I spoke to a lady, a uh, 76-year-old lady in Disbury the other day. It lives in a three-story building and is being told that she can't sell it, she can't do anything with it because she needs to get an EWS one form. They said it might be two or three years. So it just needs to be all buildings to say, especially the ones that are deemed lower to medium risk, can you be moved out of this process? Can you have, say, sprinklers, alarms, etc.? So it's not that proper holistic approach because they're just saying, here's more money. Hopefully the, the public will now think we've ended it. Hopefully these guys will go away. We're, we're not going away. We're not quite back to square one, but we do still need a proper approach. We just need to be able to say the certainty is going to return to the market because Jenrick, Boris, Rishi, they're all hopeful that the mortgage providers, the insurers, the valuation agents will just say, oh, okay, we'll just move on with our lives. Whereas they're going to keep carrying on covering their backsides and minimising their liability until government provides that certainty. Sorry, I could keep going on for another hour or so, but... No, no, it's great. I mean, one of the things I wanted to ask about, because uh, I read through your list of aims, uh, your campaign aims, and one of them is that social housing providers have, have as much access to the fund. Is that something that hasn't happened with the previous two announcements of social housing providers kind of been left out of it a bit? Yeah, the, the position for social housing is a bit um, odd. So they weren't um, originally when the building safety fund in was announced last year, um, they weren't going to be included at all. Um, the government had taken a decision that, that actually they didn't need to. They had they had enough money to pay. Um, but the reality is that for leaseholders in social housing, they can pass on the costs um, in the same way that private housing can. So you are still a leaseholder um, and it can hit particularly hard for shared owners. So um, this sort of affordable housing scheme backed by the government, you buy a percentage of your home um, and you might own, say, 25 percent of that property, um, but still be liable for 100 percent of the costs. So you're essentially paying for the housing association to, to fix the housing association's proportion of your property, which you still pay rent on. Um, which is just an absolutely bizarre system to me. Um, the other thing um, is that uh, their social housing providers are only able to um, claim for the amount that would otherwise be passed on to leaseholders, except in really um, sort of exceptional circumstances where they can show that they they simply can't afford to pay. Um, but for those, you know, 
yes, social housing um, providers, you know, they have a pot of money. But the, the question is, how should that money be best spent? Should it be spent on fixing these homes? Um, or should it be spent on providing more affordable housing, which I think we're all, you know, we all agree that we we need. Um, so, the, you know, the more money they're putting into fire safety issues, the less they're, they're spending on on actually um, helping the housing market and, and doing all of the, the sort of good things that social housing should be doing. Um, so, yeah, we think that, that social housing providers should have exactly the same access, which they don't currently have. Um, and that wasn't changed by um, Robert Jemmick's announcement last week. So you, you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation that the MPs are cottoning on to this, MPs are speaking out about it. And I know there's sort of quite quite a lot of cross-party support um, uh, to, to deal with not just the cladding but other issues um, and obviously the Grenfell inquiry is happening as well uh, endlessly that's, that's highlighting more and more problems but what what can be done to directly put pressure on the government to fix this um, obviously you're doing a lot of work with your campaign what else should be done what else should be highlighted what can what can we all do uh, well, I think the first thing is uh, writing to MPs. Um, you know, they still think many of them still think that this is, um, you know, a, a London or city, big city centred issue. Um, but that isn't true. You know, we're getting people with um, two in st- two storey buildings um, being asked for EWS ones. Um, so it, it really isn't a big issue. And the reality is that, you know, if you've got a housing market where the bottom rung is completely broken, the effect on the economy, um, the wider housing market and the economy is going to be huge um you know at the moment there was um i think this sort of stamp duty um break has really been sort of pushing up the or holding up the housing market for the moment but as soon as that ends um you know what what's going to happen the reality is that none of these flats are being bought and sold um you know and and the other end of things is that you know if you've got lots of people that are are quite literally going bankrupt because they can't afford their homes what's that going to do to the economy at a time when we really don't need any other issues um so writing to mp even if you're not directly affected just to say how important this this issue is um and how unfair it is i think that that helps um, we've got our petition, which we'd really encourage anybody that that feels, um, you know, that sympathises with our position to sign, um, because you know it's all about creating more um, media attention, um, and that's what's got us, you know until all of this um until we had a lot of media attention um we weren't really getting any response from government um but robert jemrick's announcement kind of came we think as as a response to public pressure really um, and everyone it seems is in agreement that this is so unfair um so yeah signing the petition um following our campaign and just supporting um you know all of the things that that we're doing really um would you know anyone that feels strongly would we'd really appreciate that there's just one thing as well, just to mention that, um, as Tash sort of touched upon, that we've now got there's, there's politics at play here in sort of a a good way and a bad way because the Labour MPs, Labour are now really all over it. Keir Starmer's really come out strongly. Um, prior to that, or, or recently this year, there's a fire safety bill going through the Houses of House of Parliament. It's back in the House of Commons. So first, um, we all all give a shout out to Baroness Kathkinnick in the House of Lords who actually table the amendment, say hang on a minute, we need to protect these soldiers. That's come back to the House of Commons, and there it's both the Lib Dems, um, Daisy Cooper's been very strong about it, and the Conservatives, um, Stephen McPartland and Royston Smith. So we've got a lot of Conservatives, and as we say, right to MPs, but it's the Conservatives we really want, want to try and focus on, because ultimately this just very simply comes down to uh, uh, talking about home ownership and fairness, and that's what the Conservatives say are their key brands and key messages. So they are coming out in support, some of them are still towing the party line a bit, but more of them, more and more, can see the absolute unfairness of this. And this was partly why Robert Jenrick's statement came out last week, or on the tenth, because we were expecting it to come out a little later and close to the budget. But the fire safety bill has actually returned to the House of Commons this week, so it's partly to quell the Tory rebellion. But as you can see, it's not really worked. Five or six MPs have withdrawn their support, but there's still thirty plus. So keep writing Conservative MPs, keep talking about hope home ownership, fairness, and the fact that government has said for years that, that building owners, developers should do the right thing, or government needs to do the right thing now. Um, and you mentioned your petition earlier. Can you just tell me a bit about that? 
Um, yeah, so the petition um, is essentially to stop uh, these costs being passed on to, to leaseholders. Um, the idea we're sort of, um, we want to, to get as much support and show that actually it isn't just those in, in these homes that are affected, you know, um, we're, we're all there's a there's a way to stand up to for fairness really in all of this and it isn't just us that's saying that this is unfair it's it really is a kind of um everybody getting behind it and realizing that actually this this could have such wide consequences um that it shouldn't just matter to those people that are caught up in it um but also just a general do we want to live in a society where and people are still living in unsafe homes because the government won't take any action. Um, you know, whether I lived in an unsafe home myself or not, um, I wouldn't. Um, so, um, yeah, that's that. Our petition is a um, 38 degrees peti- petition, and we'll um, we'll share the link with you, Tina. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, and I, I mean, it, I think it is one of those things that you know, when Grenfell happened, it was so awful, and we all just thought this must never ever happen again. And suddenly, it's three and a half years later, and I think it's in everyone's minds of going, we can't believe this is. You know, regardless of your politics, you should be thinking the, the last thing the government should be wanting to happen is to leave people in unsafe homes uh, and and make them pay for the privilege of of wanting to be safe. It's completely bonkers. But best of luck with it. And and the last question I just want to ask you is something that I ask every guest on the show, which is simply apart from yourself. Um, and your campaign um just is there anyone else that you'd recommend that listeners follow um or read up on or websites to go to that are specifically well either about um safety regulations and your camp uh, the campaign um or to do with housing and, and issues like that in general who, who are your go-to people well inside housing um specifically um pete apps and jack simpson have been covering this story for a long time and their coverage is just incredible um their their knowledge on the subject um is is amazing um so yeah well worth um looking at them um sunday times in the daily mail have also been doing campaigns um so uh martina lees has written some really um in-depth articles looking at this issue um and Miles Dilworth for the Daily Mail has been covering on a regular basis as well. Um, so they're sort of um, key go-tos. And also we've, there's, there's a lot of commentators on Twitter, um, legal commentators, um, Giles Peaker, Justin Bates um, and Sue Bright that are really, um, you know, covering uh, the legal side of this, which is um, a big part of the problem we're facing. Um, so there's a lot of really good resources out there. I would I would also say, so yeah, Tash is pretty much covered more, I think, you know, two years ago, in April 2019, you know, it was a few leaseholders from Sheffield, Manchester and London just went to Inside Housing and said, what can we do about this? And Martin Hilditch as well, the editor of Inside Housing, very supportive. And that's where, you know, we've, we've snowballed from there, really. So, you know, we started off with a handful of leaseholders now, thousands of people in different regions. So I'll just go back to, you know, Martina Lee's definitely has been covering this from sort of day one. Pete Apps, well, Pete Apps is my boy, Pete Apps, you know, I can't say highly enough about him really he doesn't like my voice notes but you know he'll get used to them Many thanks to Natasha and Giles for having the time to chat in what has been a pretty busy week for them. Uh, We'll see how the fire safety bill amendments go on Wednesday, which, as I said, may have happened by the time you hear this. But if you're one of the early Tuesday listening crew, then please get in a letter to your MP as quick as you can, asking for them to vote for it. There's a handy link to a letter template at the endarcladdingscandal.org site at the top of the page. um, And there you'll also find the petition Natasha mentions too. Please, please sign it. Uh, You can also find the campaign at EOCS underscore official on Twitter. And Giles' personal Twitter is at Giles Grover and he works with the amazingly named Manchester Cladiators site that you can find at manchestercladiators.org.uk or MCR Cladiators. It's such a good name. Um, there are so, so many local campaign groups about this and I was amazed at how many um, RT'd my tweet about interviewing Giles and Natasha on Saturday. Uh, so if you are affected by this, do seek out your local group and contact the Endar Cladding Scandal campaign for help too. Usually in this bit, I'd ask you for guest recommendations, but I've currently got interviewees booked up to my ears, which is odd as I should just put my laptop on a desk or something. But still, if you've got a burning desire to let me know about someone or something I need to have on this show, then do let me know and I'll pop them in the big old queue for a chat. Uh, you can do that, of course, at Parpole Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or scroll your recommendation on the surface of Mars and at some point the Perseverance should send over some pics. As always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? 
And stick a fork in this episode of the Partly Political Broadcast podcast because it is done for yet another week of our endless roller coaster of political times. A roller coaster that were it a ride, it would be just one endless downhill slope where you remain upside down throughout and there's absolutely no way of getting off. On the plus side, you wouldn't be allowed to go on it right now because of social distancing and the car park would be full of a Serco testing centre where they spent the day juggling bags of done tests and throwing them at passing geese. Review the show, donate to it if you're a big old money bags and have run out of frivolous things to order off the internet and most of all, please just tell people that this thing exists. Not that they have to listen, just that it's there so they don't trip over it when they're not looking or something. Health and safety first. Thanks and other military vehicles to ACAST, my bro, the last sceptic, Cat Day and Katie Coxall. And this will be back next week when Boris Johnson announces that actually there are now roadworks on the road to freedom and the contract to do them has been handed to someone he used to go to school with that had a toy car. Bye! This week's show was sponsored by Roadmaps by Johnson. Need to get from A to B? Using Roadmaps by Johnson will help you start, dilly-dally in the middle, turn around and get back to A again with the promise that by summer you'll be at B, but by then you'll have given up and sold your car. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.